Jerry, I feel like you're pretty judgy about my rabbit since I didn't name it Jerry first. Eris. Oh, are you picking up on that? Good. <laughs> it doesn't even sound like a rabbit. It doesn't it at all. Like some sort of like. It makes like a honking noise. Yeah, it sounds like a it's goose. from. That's a goose, not a rabbit. It sounds like it's from uh, like a like a Japanese movie. Rabbits it's like, famously don't hur, make noises. <laughs> oh, this rabbit totally makes noises. That's what I'm saying. It's not Here a rabbit. Lonely. It comes, runs over. It stands up on its hind legs, puts its gigantic paws on the top of its little container mm-hmm. that it's in, and it goes. Hur. Yeah, not a rabbit. Doesn't sound like a rabbit. It's not a rabbit, huh? Okay, good to know. Hmm. 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 That kind of sounds like a two. Hmm. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast, episode 262. I'm Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Foresteros. I'm Kathy Kong. And I'm Matt Michelottis. Uh On this week's show, we are talking to Minister Only Love Alston. She is uh, the founder of Prophetic Whirlwind. She was born and raised in East New York in Brooklyn. And she is the founder of Her Wisdom Consulting, former executive director of Pico Faith in New York. Uh, she's also a community organizer, speaker, and her book that we're interviewing about today is Prophetic Whirlwind, Uncovering the Black Biblical Destiny. So we're very excited to get into the show today. But first, I found a story that originally I was just like, eh, whatever, this is funny. And then it got super compelling. So it was an interview that Tom Morello gave. And Tom Morello is... Who's Tom? I know. I had to look it up. Look him up. Uh, Tom Morello is one of the most influential rock guitar musicians. He is the guitarist of Rage Against the Machine, Audio Slave, The Night Watchman, uh, Prophets of Rage. Uh, He actually has a degree, I think it's sociology from Harvard. So he's super politically active. (laughs) I've seen that guy on Twitter. He's awesome. I've seen him owning people who are like, well, maybe someone with an education should weigh in. He's like, well, I mean, I went to Ivy League school. I like that he's a good school. One time someone said, I wish musicians and celebrities would shut their mouths about stuff they don't know anything about. And he was like, okay, and he's from Libertyville. (laughs) Oh, is he? That's where he grew up. Amazing. That's why I was like, wait, I know the (laughs) name. So I just looked it up to confirm. Yes. His solo projects these days, he just collaborates with a lot of different artists and Mm -hmm. he gives a lot of really interesting people spotlights to perform with him. It's really good stuff. Yeah, he he's truly incredible. Uh, and in this in this interview he gave, it was interesting because he basically said that he's he's frustrated with young aspiring musicians who don't practice their guitar or whatever instrument eight hours a day, which is how he got you know to be an innovative like boundaries expanding guitar player. Uh, and, and again, if you know anything about Tom Morello, he is famous for the weird noises that he creates with his guitar that are part of his guitar solos and stuff. Uh, so, so wait, so he's complaining that kids these days don't practice enough, right? Meaning they're not good enough or what does uh, he mean? That they want basically, uh, that he wants, they, that they all want to have the big record deals or be famous, but they're not putting into the work. Oh, okay. 
So yeah. um, the, the the article, which we'll put in the show notes at fascinatingpodcast.com, had this quote at the end of it, which was what caught my eye. Because I was like, yeah, okay, I understand that, right? I mean, that's when people say, oh, you got a book deal. Gosh, I've thought about writing a book. Uh, how do you get to be a good writer? I'm like, well, you just have to read a lot and write a lot. Like that. that's kind of the secret. You know, you just have to put in a whole lot of hours. Uh, so I get that, like, I get that frustration, right? But then at the bottom of the article, it talked about how the music industry has changed. And it made me reflect a lot on the book publishing industry because it's similarly changed, right? So here's the quote. So the publisher to consumer relationship has changed in the music industry. That said, this requires more self-promotion. Stop me if this sounds familiar. Requires more self-promotion, <laughs> social media hustling, and business sense on the part of the artist. And then here's the part that really caught me. Things that can cut into anyone's eight-hour block of guitar time. So I thought it was interesting that this this now I mean this this uh, interviewer wasn't trying to take Tom Morello down or anything like that, but I think he observed an interesting dynamic at play, which is that you know when Rage Against the Machine rose to prominence in the early '90s, we still had a strong. I mean, this was even like pre Napster, right? So we had this strong, thriving music industry where they could sign a little known uh, a little known band who had. I mean, there wasn't really even social media in the early '90s, right? So they could just like pluck a band out of obscurity and make them into international superstars. Uh, but that meant that they had all of this time where they didn't have to run their own merch website. They didn't have to be on social media all the time. They didn't have to book their own touring. Like people did that for them. And I thought about us as authors too, right? Like uh, when we had Stephen R. Donaldson on the podcast the first time ages ago, he talked about the difference between a book release when the first Chronicles of Thomas Covenant book came out when they flew you to New York and threw a big party. And he said, you know, I put out the, the last book in this epic fantasy series. And I got an email that was like, congratulations on your book coming out today. <laughs> Like, um, but like all of us, I think have felt the pain of having to build platform and manage social media. And it is interesting, like how much of our creative and writing energy do we lose and what kind of works are being lost because of the nature of the publishing industry? I don't know. I had all this. Yeah. Sorry. What, what do y'all think about all of that? That's what I think. <laughs> well, you know, and it, it also impacts one, whether or not you can get published and then if you can get a contract, how much you're paid for the book. So I yeah. literally just had this conversation with a uh, writer friend of mine, Tasha Jun, um, around whether or not you can find an agent. And if you can find an agent, it's because not necessarily you've passed on your work to them, but because they've found you. And that's usually via social media. Right? Who are you connected with? What are you publishing? Who's sharing that? And or who do you know that already has an agent? And then um, publishers looking at your proposals and literally saying you don't have a big enough platform. Yeah, I had a I had a friend two weeks ago who on Twitter he's pretty well known in a certain kind of subgroup of mm -hmm. people talking about a really difficult theological issue related to LGBT stuff. And he's young. He's in seminary right now. He just put out a tweet that said, Hey, I'm thinking about writing a book, but I don't know what to do. And two professional editors at, at well-known houses reach out on Twitter and said, please call me. Yeah. Uh, which is really, really different. Uh, and then he sent, I sent him a note. Hey, do you need help? And he was like, I don't know what's going on. I said, you should call those people. And he was like, oh, do you think they were serious? Like, he has no idea. <laughs> like, 
Yeah. Yeah. You should call them. Yeah, I, there's no fix for it, right? It's just the reality of the fact that the industry has changed. People don't buy books like they did 20 years ago. And so that's that's changed the whole industry. And now if you are serious about getting traditionally published, you have to become a small business owner and a social media marketer and all kinds of other stuff, right? Uh, and that's not those those skill sets don't go hand in hand with becoming a good writer. So our uh, again, if you want to read a lot and write a lot, become a good writer. But you also want to get traditionally published. Well, you also have that it also takes time to become uh, to develop a social media platform. I mean, Kathy, you only started your blog what two years ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Not just traditionally mm. published. I mean, self published. You got to. The, right. the difference between traditional publish. If you want to sell any, right, Clay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, traditional publish, the only difference is there's a large majority of creatives who believe that that's going to actually solve their problems of doing those things for them. It's it's still not. You're still going to have to do it all yourself anyway. <laughs> but, um, yeah, if you're self-published, it's, there's not even a pretense that there's help coming. Right. And this is probably a good moment to announce the fascinating podcast TikTok account where your host <laughs> will be dancing and singing to popular memes of the day. Please pay attention to us. <laughs> um, no. We have, uh, we, have, we have four, well, three followers. I think we just lost Kathy. <laughs> we, wait, we have um, a TikTok? No, it's a joke. I'm <laughs> Hey, at least none of us said, what's a TikTok, right? <laughs> a TikTok? <laughs> uh, well, I, I would love to hear what some of our, I know a lot of our listeners are authors or aspiring to be published in different fields. And I'd love to hear how this uh, resonates with all of you. Um, again, I love Tom Morello, but, but I thought it was interesting that even someone who's so careful about how he wields his privilege as clay, as you pointed out, right. Uh, could still have this blind spot about how the music industry has changed. Cause he certainly doesn't have to, um, worry about his social media brand and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so because he came of age at a certain time. So, yep. uh, yeah, I would love to hear what y'all think, but, uh, for now, I think it's time for us to get over to our interview with minister only love Chica Alston. So let's head over there. Well, we're here with our guest, Minister Only Love, Chika Alston, and want to welcome you to the Fascinating Podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, everyone. It's really great to be on. Oh, we're super glad that you um, are on with us. So um, we call ourselves the Fascinating Podcast, and so we like to start off by asking our guest, uh, what fascinates you in life? I think what fascinates me in life is learning about different cultures and travel and just um, just different cultures and how you can learn a lot about yourself, about your faith through travel. I think travel really fascinates me. Is there a travel experience or a location um, that kind of stands out in your mind as a place or a time that you learn something that you still hold as significant? Oh, definitely. Um, the first times I went to Ghana and Nigeria and West Africa definitely taught me a great deal about myself, my family, my faith, 
um, the book I worked on and just um, about prayer in a deeper way and just what it really means to um, to be a part of a family. So when that, was that trip? Um, my first trip was in November 2016. I actually left for Ghana with a small tour the day after Trump was elected, but it was not planned that way. We had planned that trip in May. <laughs> and it just so happened that that was the date. And so people were saying, wow, God really takes care of you. Are you going to come back? You don't need to come back. We would miss you, but get out while you can. But that um that was when the first trip was and on that trip we went to togo we attempted to get into benin but didn't get past customs um and then the first trip i took to nigeria was november 2017 and i returned to ghana then wow oh the timing of that trip i can't get over that yeah. <laughs> i promise you Oh man, <laughs> was not playing. I remember that day well. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> Minister, can you tell us? We've been talking a lot about deconstruction, decolonization, and then the rebuilding of faith uh, this season on our podcast. Can you, did this trip contribute to that at all for you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yes, I was already on a journey to deconstructing a lot of what I I had learned in um in um western christianity and so um that trip definitely helped me deconstruct how whiteness is centered by um many um in the west and even in in the east now because of colonialism because i on my trips the main goal was to go and visit and um you know, research African Jewish communities, but African Jewish communities in West Africa, which um, does not get a lot of attention. And actually, many of the communities I visited lost, you know, millions to the transatlantic slave trade, like the Igbo, like the Ashanti. And so, um, you know, visiting and seeing how they interpret Torah if they were conservative or orthodox and those categories really don't get used in Africa. There are those who um, either don't believe Yeshua is the Messiah or they do believe. Um, but as far as like orthodox reconstructionists, those, those titles really don't get used by African Jews a lot unless they've had a lot of um, interaction with um, Jews from the West. But um, I learned a great deal about how you actually you know, live out scripture. I learned a great deal about perseverance. How do you hold on to your faith when, you know, you are a migrant that, you know, whose people over the course of a hundred, hundreds or thousands of years migrated from Israel across the continent, you know, running away from, um, you know, Islamic crusades, Christian crusades, um, the Inquisition, and then, you know, you finally hit West Africa and you're able to rest for a few hundred years and then you, you know, deal with um, the transatlantic slave trade and colonialism and what happens when you you lose um, your traditions, but then you later generations reclaim them. So I learned a great deal about how you truly reconstruct um, your faith. And I learned that, you know, centering 
and telling the truth about the blackness of the biblical texts and the biblical peoples is not just something for people of African descent, but is really something for people of the church at large, because we have so many who are being made to feel that they're a side piece to, to I'm sorry for that word, but like a side piece <laughs> to the good news of um, who I call Yeshua the Messiah, who many know as Jesus Christ, whether they're women, whether they're um, certain ethnic minorities. Um, Kathy knows there have been many times when, you know, racist, um, anti-Asian vacation Bible school curriculums have been published. And in my research, I even came across a Chinese pastor who did a whole lesson on where you can find, you know, Chinese people in the scriptures. And it was very similar to the work that I do. And what he was saying was accurate from my studies. And so just realizing that there are so many who have been, this is a, I don't even like to use the term good news. I like to use the term great news. This Mm -hmm. is such a great story of redemption for the Hebrew people first and then for all mankind that it makes me sad that the story has been made so small. Like we don't even um, know about the prophecies concerning the lost tribes of Israel. And if we paid attention to them, you know, then we would have to pay more attention to communities of color because they weren't lost in Europe. And so, and then we have to look at the anti-Semitism, which many, when you say the church has replaced um, the people of Israel, that is not that's rooted in anti-Semitism because I mean that is rooted in anti-Semitism and of course we don't support the um, injustices towards Palestinians which many are of um, the lost tribes of Israel as well and in my book I cover the blacks of Jericho and Palestine and what I learned about them don't want to give too much away but there is an African quarter of Jerusalem with people who are called Afro-Palestinians, but there are various Black people groups, including Canaanites, that tribe that always have beef with the children of Israel in scripture. (laughs) They're still alive. They're still Black. And a lot of them still worship their indigenous Canaanite gods. Um, And so, you know, this story that could be so huge has been made so small. And, and so, you know, even when we look at the injustices in Palestine, um, you know, it's because of how small we've made this story as well. And so what I've learned in my journeys is this story is much bigger than what I was receiving in America. And as a young Black woman, I have a central role in the story, not just as a metaphor of God being on the side of the oppressed or a metaphor that the conditions that Yahshua lived in are like the conditions that young black people live in, but like literally um, they are duplicate. You know, he was lynched and many of those in this country who are being lynched when you look up where they come from in West Africa, which this may be unbelievable, but my Jewish brothers and sisters know way much more about this as far as genetics, um, as far as many Jewish newspapers report on these lost tribe groups, many, um, you know, rabbis visit these groups like the Sefwi Jews of Ghana, who are featured in my book and in the documentary, doing Jewish, a story from Ghana. 
like many of us in America do come from these people groups. And it's sad that when I get to the Christian side of things, people are just very ignorant. And it, 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 we can't help what we don't know, but when we don't want to know, that's an issue. Now, I know some people have different views on biblical literalism, but even if you believe the stories aren't literal, a literal scribe wrote the stories about a literal right. people. Right. And that scribe right. had a body, they had hair, they had skin, they had a mother, they had a father. So I don't debate with people about whether Abraham and Sarah you know, everything in their story actually happened. I believe it did. And I believe there's some things we just don't know how to read, don't understand when we're reading their story. But I, I can't, there is no debate about a scribe wrote that story. And what people group are they from? Because when I examined actually much of what the culture and the rituals we see in the Old Testament, like libations, which appear in scripture over 30 times, you see in West Africa certain traditions being held um, almost duplicate. But sadly, white missionaries deemed blowing the shofar, pouring a drink offering, they deemed all these things as pagan because they didn't know right. the Old Testament. Um, right. When Yahshua says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone wants to sup with me, just open the door. Revelation 3.20 in an ancient Jewish engagement ceremony the groom would do a knocking at the bride's door. The only people group in the world who still do knockings and engagements are Africans who get married when they have their traditional married culture. So literally, Yahshua is saying, like he's alluding to the bride of Christ. Um, and so these are just some of the things that I've learned in deconstructing um, the theology that many of us have been giving and then unapologetically putting you know, my people in the rightful place, the center of the theology, because it was, you know, black people who in the Bible, there is no term black, African-American, white, Asian, yellow, Native American, red. There are just names because the construct of race and just dumping whole people groups into three or four categories, that's about 500 years old. But you will hear the names of tribes and clans like Canaanite. Israelite, um, Ammonite, Moabite, Jeff, Japheth, Ham, Shem. And, you know, that is in Africa, there are thousands of tribes, but we've moved away from the tribe, the family and the clan. And now people are just dumped into these categories. But if you were looking at some of these biblical characters today, based on who lived in those locations 2000 years ago, you would find a black person. And Hararitz, one of the top newspapers in Israel a few years ago, posted an article based on research done by a Russian university, how black were the ancient Israelites. DNA facial reconstruction will surprise you, where they took two skulls from Galilee. We all know who was from Galilee, Jesus, and they were about 2,000 years old. And when they reconstructed the skulls, and this was their words, both skulls had black, African features, sub-Saharan features, and they were very blunt about that because some would say, oh, they just had North African features. And the way North Africans look today is not the way they look thousands of years ago. And there are actually way more Blacks in the Middle East and North Africa than people know. There are even Blacks in Iraq and, I and in Iran. But in any case, they made it clear that the skulls look sub-Saharan African when they reconstructed them. 
And they said the woman's features even looked more sub-Saharan African than the man's. And so, and this is in one of the top Israeli newspapers, but again, this is something that the average Christian sitting in an American church doesn't know. And they think when we bring up like Jesus was black, Jesus was brown, that we're just making something up to make folks feel good, but we're actually trying to get back to the truth because in the scriptures, we were told about an antichrist. And during this COVID epidemic, you hear a lot of people talking about the antichrist and end times, but we make it so sensational with our left behind books, which I read and watched the movies growing up. (laughs) Antichrist just means like a false Christ. And so when a picture is created of a blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus based on Cesar Borgia, who is the illegitimate son of a Pope, this is not um conspiracy theory this is actual literal history the pope wanted to honor his son by having him painted as jesus since he couldn't claim him in real life and he literally looks like the picture of jesus most of us know paul said if anyone preaches another christ like basically let them be a heretic so there is two christs out there there is the historical jesus and there is the false idol of white supremacy. The white Jesus. You can't, you can't be my son, but you can be the son of God. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and yep. Oh, yep. You can't be. Oof. Okay, that's a sermon. Yep. You can't be my son, but you can be the son of God. But in that image, millions of people yeah. of color have died. Mm. And um, so, yeah. What if we thought love- of the Antichrist in that? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, 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 we want to get into this idea of the blackness at the centrality of scripture, mm-hmm. but I wonder if before we dive all the way into that, could you talk a little bit about how like your personal faith has transformed in the wake mm-hmm. of all of this? Like I, I'm thinking, you know, specifically from probably the, the kind of faith you were raised in in your teens and early twenties to the kind of faith you practice now. Um, how has, how has the stuff that became this book transformed your like your faithfulness, you know, in in the world? So I've been on a journey since about 2011 after finishing seminary at Union Theological Seminary, where I, you know, um, took some classes with Dr. Cohn and really focused on the Bible and the poor. I worked with the Cairo Center, which was Um, which is now working with Reverend Leroy Barber to relaunch the Poor People's Campaign. But what people don't know is Kairos was trying, um, was the poverty initiative, and they were working to relaunch Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign. This has been about a 20-year journey because I, I you know, worked with them and others on that um, as far as uncovering the history and teaching Um, poor people's groups about the campaign. So I really focused on liberation theology, what the Bible said about the poor. And I constantly saw duplicate circumstances, the the same circumstances um, that my people were facing. And so I began to also see a lot of black millennials struggling with the images of black people being killed on camera. And we have Ahmed and Breonna, Um, young black man and woman in two different states that were recently killed by police. Breonna Taylor killed in her home and she was an EMT serving at two hospitals during the COVID pandemic, um, risking her life um, for a country that did not care about her. So many were leaving the faith 
And I knew from my journey that there is truth in the good news, but it was being perverted. So I wasn't raised by religious parents. My mother was the first black atheist I ever met. My father was in an offshoot of the Nation of Islam, but I wasn't raised in that. Um, part of my story is that, you know, at seven, my family did become homeless and my little brother and I went into traditional foster care and then my grandmother and aunt, um, Freddie Mae Jacobs and Frida Alston, they took us into kinship foster care. My grandmother um, was a woman of faith, but did not go to church. And my great grandmother on my father's side was a woman of strong faith, but stopped going to church. And I think just some of the issues we talk about now, there were always a remnant of people in the church that were concerned about it. They just didn't have the platforms we have today. Um, and But faith was never pushed on me. But at 10 years old, I started to feel led to pray and read the Bible morning, noon, and night. And I started with the Psalms. And at 14 years old, I walked to Greater Bright Light Missionary Baptist Church under the late Reverend H. DeVore Chapman, you got to say it all, a Black Baptist <laughs> church in my neighborhood. And I accepted Yahshua as my savior. That Tuesday I was baptized. That Sunday I took my first communion. And I was on a journey um, to really seek, you know, the spirit and the truth of the word. But what I started to encounter was like, I would listen to Christian radio, read Christian newspapers, because I was so hungry to just learn about this faith. And what I started to encounter was also not just the black church, but this rise of evangelicalism. So I have a baby face, but I'm older than what I look. And I became a Christian in 1996. And I was recruited and given a scholarship to Liberty University without even applying. And when I had the phone interview with them, they laughed at my name. I asked them questions about women not being able to wear pants. They were stumped with the questions that I was asking. And it was just a disaster of an interview. And I said, scholarship or no scholarship, I can't, um, I can't, you know, I just couldn't go down that route. But in college, I was in a large evangelical fellowship that was predominantly white and um, a historically black Christian sorority. And at Penn State, there were a lot of incidents of hate crimes. And I saw, you know, some good responses, like Campus Crusade for Christ actually had a really good response. But the majority of the Christians, black and white, did not have a good answer for the racism that was plaguing our campus to the point where a black man was killed. And my friends who are black leaders had to have security while they were college students. And so I almost left my faith and the Holy Spirit told me what you're encountering is not the faith, it's a perversion of it. And a professor gave me God of the oppressed. And I really started a journey. But in 2012, um, due to health problems and overwork, I started wanting to keep the Sabbath. I saw it in the scripture. I knew I needed rest. And I saw that countries like Ghana, before colonialism, Saturday was always a day of rest and worship. They literally called European colonialists. They said, you serve Sunday God. We, we serve Saturday God. Sunday God is the white God and Saturday God is our God. And in the book, Sabbath Roots, the African Connection by Charles E. Bradford, statistically, Africa has more Sabbath keepers than anywhere in the world. And many of the tribes kept Sabbath, not all, but many, 
um, had either Saturday Sabbath or some form of Sabbath before colonialism. And so I started to keep Sabbath and then I started to look at the, um, the Hebrew roots of my faith because I wanted to know the culture that my savior lived in and it was very similar to African culture. And so that's a little bit of my journey, um, you know, and just trying to separate all the kind of wheat from chaff that has happened over 2000 years of, you know, church history, what is true and then what is just culture. Because anytime I tried to conform to what, to who white evangelicals said I should love, who I should worship with, what issues I should care about, I felt in my spirit that it, it wasn't completely right. And sadly, much of white evangelicalism has seeped into Black and Latino and Asian churches as well. Wow, that's amazing. I, I, I know, looking back at my life, growing up in the Christian church, there are these moments where these things I believe, someone said something and it just, like, I remember really vividly, I mean, I was pretty young, someone telling me that Satan isn't like a red dude with horns and a pitchfork. And I was like, what? Are you joking me? Because uh, I was certain that's what he looked like. Uh, and I think something similar when I was much older, when someone said, you know, there's not really any white people in the Bible. And I was like, what are you talking about? There's, oh, wow. Okay. And it was like this whole new way of looking at things. And you you start right off the bat in your book. Uh, that's the introduction, right? The Bible is a black book. Can Can you help our listeners understand a little bit what you mean by that? The Bible is a black book. Yes. Yeah, so like I said earlier, um, there, you won't find the terms really black, white, Asian, Native American, like you won't find a lot of the modern racial terms, but when you study archeology, span genetics, historical writings, you do find that many of the biblical people groups would be termed black today. And so, and when you look at the culture, especially the culture within the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, you will find a lot of um, traditions that are also found in Africa, like the Ibibio of Nigeria, who are most known for their wedding traditions because the women go into seclusion and they um, gain weight. And they um, that's like what most people know them for, but they used to blow the shofar and white missionaries told them that was pagan. When you look in the Old Testament, every time you have a convocation or a holiday, you are to blow the shofar. We even talk about, you know, Yahshua returning with the trumpet. So when I say it's a black book, I mean, the people in it would be classified as black today. And the culture uh, that is the basis for all the whole scriptures, the culture in the Hebrew Bible is very similar, if not duplicate to the majority of African culture. And so mm. that's what I mean by uh, a black book. And I'm not the first to say this. Dr. Cohn said God is black. Jesus is black. We have um, the Black Messiah book that was written in the 90s. We, there are many scholars who have written on this subject. And sadly, though, in the 90s, when many books were being written about this in the original African Heritage Study Bible by Dr. Kane Hope Felder, who's passed on from Howard University, um, he published a study Bible that really had resources to help people see this. Um, so I always want to honor like the ancestors who have been doing this work. 
I think what my book has is some of the newer information about tribes in Africa that are coming forth about who they are, because many, like the Jews of Timbuktu, kept who they were a secret for their own safety. Um, when ISIS destroyed some of the library of Timbuktu, they found in the rubble books with Hebrew writing in it that listed the Hebrew families to the point where the man who lived as a Muslim who ran the Timbuktu library found his own family listed um, in the list of Jewish families in Timbuktu. And so he reverted and started organizing about 1,000 of the Jews of Timbuktu. But now more information is out about those tribes. But I also add, what does this mean about justice in our communities? And what does this mean for the gospel? Um, and so, but when I say the Bible is a black book, I'm talking about the culture and the people that originally helped shape the text. Now we know, I hope this is not shaking anyone, but the Bible wasn't written by the Holy Spirit sitting at a laptop, writing it <laughs> like how we write our books over the course of the He was using year. like a quill, right? Yes. It was written by various scribes who I believe were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it was written by various people. And one scribe was a woman, Prophetess Huldah, who when King Josiah and his men found the Torah, because the Hebrew people were always losing the Torah, then doing what they want to do, and then finding it, reading it, and feeling sad. He called the woman, Prophetess Huldah, to read the Torah to them, interpret it, and she is the scribe that scribed the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, which is a very famous prayer song. Um, and I just want to lift that up, that there were women scribes as well, because um, we have to uncover the Black biblical destiny, which my first book does, but my second book is going to be um, prophetic world when uncovering the woman's biblical destiny. Because before <laughs> the blackness of the Bible was whitewashed, the role of women in the Bible was hidden yes. and lied about. And so, Kathy um, seems excited we, for some we're going to go into sure that. Why. They're connected. Yes, when is Kathy. that book coming out? Well, I mean, well, now quarantine, I still work on quarantine and I still minister, but um, I have some, I mean, I can't travel. So um, I'm going to start working on it now and it won't be, the first book took six years because of the field research, but this yeah. book should, you know, I'm hoping that it will be able to be out in 2021 or 2022 because I won't okay. have to do as, um, when I did field research, I actually ended up doing some research about the role of women in African Jewish communities, because in some ways they, um, I found more respect for me as a woman in those communities than I found in a lot of our communities here. And that was very interesting. Okay. So, you know, you need to let me know when you're done. Oh yes, book. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you already know Kathy. <laughs> yes, yes. So I'm curious um, because for a lot of you know, in the broader term, people of color, the Bible really has become a tool of oppression. Um, and uh, whether or not we grew up in a Christian environment here in the U.S you know, the culture is steeped in it um, in a lot of ways. So I'm wondering, especially for those who have like grown up or became 
Christians or are still like in families um, where the Bible has been a tool of oppression for people of color, how do you how do you come alongside folks like that, folks like me? How would what would you say to them about the Bible and scripture because it has been used against them? So this is a really important um this is a really important topic because it is sad that it has been used as a tool against us. For instance, in the National Museum of the Bible, they have a copy of the Slave Bible. And the Slave Bible had definitely the Exodus removed and most of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament removed, and any scriptures about liberation removed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it, it is sad that it has been used as a tool against many of us. And, and ultimately, there is a message about liberation in the scriptures, but when it depends on how things are translated, how things are interpreted and taught. And because the tools of translation have been hidden from many of us or many people groups are depending on organizations that have not, you know, repented of white supremacy to translate the scriptures into their native languages. We, it, it has been used as a tool. And so part of my work is also helping um, and working with those who are better experts than mine because Prophetic Whirlwind is a teaching ministry as well. We're really helping to teach like people in my community, how to do exegesis, how to use a concordance, how to use tools um, where they can learn a little bit of the biblical language or connecting them with teachers I know who are of African descent who are fluent in Greek and Hebrew. I have a friend, Ashanti, um, out of Sacramento that she utilizes social media to teach, you know, young Black folks biblical Greek and Hebrew. And she does a lot of work around when people misinterpret Paul's letters to oppress women. And so I think education is the key to show people what was the actual message of the scriptures and then how was it used? Because anything, I mean, we, I mean, so much has been used against us, whether it's Um, you know, entertainment, whether it's even food and what's in our communities, what's not in our communities, the fashion industry, but does that mean that looking nice is inherently wrong? But what we have to do is now um, really get to the heart and not depend on other people to interpret for us. Um, And I get a lot of encouragement from African Jewish communities and African um, initiated churches who, you know, in the early 1900s, you had the Zulu Zionists who, you know, they started studying the Hebrew language and started keeping the Sabbath and it gave them the courage to rise up against colonialists. Actually, in South Africa and Zimbabwe, there were so many of the Bantu prophets that started observing Torah and then feeling like them and their people could stand up to the colonialists that um, any um, many of the African Sabbath keeping churches were made to register under like Methodist Church or the Presbyterian Church. Like you had to get under a Western denomination because when these people started to keep Sabbath, 
in the Torah, they started to think that they could stand up to colonialists. Because when you have one day that you have to rest and not work and not slave for someone, you have a lot of time to think. And when you actually have time and the ability to think, that is the biggest threat to people trying to oppress you. And so um, I think we have to look at the message of the scriptures and amplify that and separate it from how it has been used as a tool. Because, you know, even oppression exists even outside of the scriptures. So even in atheist societies, there were still incidents of racism towards people of color. So it's more about the insidiousness of white supremacy that will use anything it can use versus like the Bible is the cause of white supremacy. It's more about how it's been interpreted. I love That's really helpful. I love your insistence that when we take scripture seriously, uh, it becomes a tool for liberation. I, uh, it's, it's such a simple statement, but it's so profound. Yes. And it's, it's a journey that we all have to go through if we really want to get to what is liberating about our faith. Well, I would, uh, personally, I just want to encourage any, all of our listeners, uh, that this book is terrific. Uh, it's a thorough, deep read. Uh, the amount of scholarship that you pack into it is astounding. And um, yeah, if, if, if you're not sure how the Bible speaks to issues of race, uh, this book will change that for you. <laughs> Very much so. So um, I uh, just really want to encourage our folks to, to check it out. It's really terrific. Uh, Only Love, we are about out of time, but before uh, before you go, we'd love to invite you to participate in our our weekly ritual of sharing what fa- what has fascinated us this week. It could be anything. Uh, we usually share, you know, a TV show, movie, something we're reading, uh, a new hobby we've picked up, just kind of anything for our listeners. Uh, if you'd like to participate with us, we'd be honored. Okay, so one thing that fascinated me this week that was cool, Kathy, I know about it. So Saturday evening, um, Jill Scott and Erica Badu yes. had an Instagram. Like it was a battle. It was billed as it like was. a versus, but it was more like a sister, big auntie love fest. And they played their songs. And it was perfect for Mother's Day. I think they did it because, you know, for, for the mothers. And it was just beautiful. And it was like a great, you know, right after ending Sabbath, able to jump on that. And I love both of them. And I will say, though, brothers, I'm sorry to the men when Teddy Riley and Babyface, two R&B legends, tried to do their Instagram battle. (laughs) Didn't even go off because Teddy Riley had so he had dancers and all this extra stuff. And like, I just want to say the sisters were able to just bring it together, yeah. You know, lo-fi, and and, and it was, but it was really cool. And you, I saw so many people that I knew on it, but also like Snoop Dogg was on it. And I told oh, wow. my friend from LA, I'm like, Snoop Dogg was on, <laughs> you know, like I I didn't accept. And then my friend from LA said, well, sometimes you know brothers gotta be sensitive to it i said yes <laughs> so that fascinated me i think it it should still be on the internet like on youtube or maybe on their instagram but it's been a really hard like time for a lot of us and that was just a great way 
um, to bring people together and be positive. So that really fascinated me, like a, just a good way to utilize social media right now. Yeah. Apparently yeah. from the quick research I just did, only about a billion people watched it. Yeah. Literally. So no big deal. <laughs> and it was the only chatter on my Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. So people were watching and like my entire Twitter feed was tweeting along. So it was, that was super fun. That's awesome. <laughs> um, well, I guess I'll jump in. Uh, I have two uh-huh. <laughs> in the tradition of JR. Hey! Right. So proud right now. <laughs> so uh, the first one is the PBS documentary, Asian Americans. It's currently uh, running live, but also streaming on the PBS website. So I know you can find it on Amazon Prime, but if you just want to go onto the PBS website, you should be able to um, see that. And um, it's a five-episode series spanning the history of Asian Americans. And, you know, it it's history some that I know, but then to see it visually and narrated, I think is incredibly powerful for me as somebody who had to learn a lot of that history outside of school. It just wasn't a part of my education. So we would learn about like U.S. history and it would really be from the perspective of, you know, war, Vietnam War, the Korean War, fighting, you know, communism. And those stories were always told from the white perspective, from you know, Western perspective. So I have thoroughly enjoyed it and being able to see a couple people um, on screen that I know has also been a little bit of like, oh, I know historians. (laughs) 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 Super fun. (laughs) Peter's like, how do you know them? I'm like, oh, I'm a nerd in a different way. So, uh, so that's been super fun. I really (laughs) encourage people to watch that and to learn about you know, it's it's American history. It's Asian Americans, but it's American history that we don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think it will help people understand the complexity around what is a political label, Asian American. Uh, and then the other thing is uh, the Netflix series Unorthodox. What's, uh, what's that about? It is about um, a... Uh, is she Hasidic Jew? Oh, I need to do more research. Um, uh, and she lives uh, and grows up in Brooklyn. What is the borough where the there's a Jewish community? Oh, coffee brain. I don't have enough coffee. <laughs> anyway, um, she runs away. And leaves this very um, conservative space. The entire uh, show, they are speaking a little bit of English, but mostly Yiddish. It's a, it's a documentary or it's a... No. Oh, so it's, it's based a, oh. on a book. It's based on a book, but it it's most... Uh, I don't know, biographical fiction. I will put in the show notes the book 
that it is based off of. But um, so it's the story of her kind of finding herself and inside leaving, and outside the community. Yeah, and leaving, running away from the community, not telling anyone uh, where she ends up, and then her husband and her husband's cousin um, fly out to essentially hunt her down and bring her home. Wow. Um, and so I just loved how it was shot. Uh, I loved hearing and seeing uh, the accuracy of the culture um, of this Orthodox Jewish people, um, their wedding ceremony, the, um, the grief, mezuzah, the, um, as they enter into a home, there's a plate on the doorway and it marks, you know, much like in the Passover marking the doorway of uh, the people. So it's just beautiful. And then to hear the language and to hear Yiddish spoken and not just kind of the word or a phrase that's passed on into kind of English slang uh, was really powerful. And then realizing, you know, <laughs> when religion becomes oh, I don't know, so conservative and so insular. The patterns are so similar. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Wow. Um, Jer, what about you? Yeah, so I am, in honor of Asian American Heritage Month, reading a book called Shadow of the Fox by Julie Kagawa. And it is... Uh, it, it's a sort of YA fantasy novel. I'm not very far into it, so this is kind of what I'm guessing right now. YA fantasy novel, but it's grounded in Japanese mythology. Mm. So there's already been an Oni, and uh, which is like a, a demon, and all kinds of stuff. So it's it's really fun so far. I'm only a few chapters in, but uh, it's, a, it's a great read, and I don't know a ton about Japanese mythology, so I'm really looking forward to being immersed in this world. But it's the first of a trilogy, so... Yes, really fun so far. Shadow of the Fox, Julie Kagawa. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm learning a lot about rabbits right now. My, uh, <laughs> we let our daughters get a rabbit. I mean, my older daughters are teenagers, you know, and my youngest is, is 10. But, uh, yeah, we've never had a rabbit before, and we accidentally got a gigantic one. It's like when it, <laughs> it stands, looks big. When it stands on its hind legs, it's two feet tall. Uh, Matt, if your rabbit's standing on its hind legs, is it a were rabbit? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but, and here's the other thing. I haven't told my wife this yet. We were told it was a Rex, which is a kind of rabbit that this is about as big as it would get. But I was looking online and I think it could be what's called a continental giant, which means it could get up to twice as big as it is right now. What? <laughs> Did you buy so a I'm horse by mistake? <laughs> Ew. The family we got it from, it's actually a super sad story. Like, the their, this woman's father died from COVID-19, and before he died said, could you take care of my rabbit? But they didn't know what to do. Like, they were just having trouble with it. And so I had seen them online and reached out, and they were like, yes, please take this rabbit. So, but yeah, I don't know much about the rabbit. So anyway, I'm learning a lot about rabbits. Hopefully, I will only have a two-foot-tall rabbit uh, as we move forward. But uh, that's been fascinating me. I'm, they're so can, interesting. Can you confirm it, that this rabbit's name is J.R. Furisteros? <laughs> that was an early, that was, that was on the list. Um, but we went with Bruce instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And rabbits are weird, though. They're really social, right? So, like, when I go over to where we keep the rabbit, we have a couple different places he stays. He comes hopping over. He makes, like, these weird honking noises. He wants to, like, get scratched and, like, kind of cat-like in some ways. Mm. I mean, friendlier. It's more like a puppy that never grows up, maybe. Anyway, rabbits, man. I'm not convinced you own a rabbit after that description. <laughs> no, it's true. It's how, well, it's how my rabbit is. I haven't had like lots of rabbits. I'm sure you own something. I'm just not sure it's a rabbit. <laughs> Maybe it's not a rabbit. Well, that would be disappointing to discover that we accidentally got a, I don't know what it would be. It's like a awesome. hedgehog or something. Clay, what do you got? Hi. Clay. Yeah, I've been listening the whole time since I was able to join. Um... So yeah, I uh, I'm into this weird like Disney Mandalorian th- yes. kind of kick again, and obviously Baby Yoda is a, a spirit animal around here that makes Jen very happy. But um, if you guys heard, do you guys know who Dave Filoni is? Yeah, I guess he did the Clone Wars or whatever. But um, so he showed up on the Chef Show. Uh, they did a couple episodes at Skywalker Ranch, which was amazing with John Favreau. And I learned that Dave Filoni is from Pittsburgh. Like basically, we were he played hockey, graduated a couple years before me, and then he was at a different state school there. Um, and now he's working on The Mandalorian, and they've got this new roundtable series they just launched on Disney Plus that we're gonna watch after we do the the rewatch. So I've just been kind of intrigued by these guys, and uh, obviously enjoying some Baby Yoda. So yeah, finding. <laughs> Tranquility in the Baby Yoda slash Mandalorian slash mind of a Pittsburgh creative. All right. Well, we are uh, wrapping up this episode. Uh, Before we go, a couple of last questions. Uh, Only Love, where, if people want to follow what you're doing online, stay updated on your writing, especially with this second book coming out, uh, where are the best places to follow what you do? Um, Well, thank you all for having me. I'm so so happy we pressed through and we were finally <laughs> able to do this podcast. Thank you for your patience. Um, you can find me. My name is Minister Only Love Chico Austin. You can find me at propheticworldwind.com. I'm also on Twitter under Prophetic World and under Facebook and Instagram under Prophetic Worldwind. I also have a YouTube channel, Prophetic Worldwind, which shows a lot of my travels to visit Jews in Africa and also has some good stuff about women and scripture on there and um, if you want to get the book in kindle or print you can go to amazon.com and just type in prophetic whirlwind uncovering the black biblical destiny and i always want to shout out and honor reverend um leroy barber and the voices project who published my book as the first book to be published under voices publishing and so i really appreciate all of their support and i appreciate all of you and Kathy was one of the endorsers so I truly appreciate her for endorsing as well always a pleasure that's why uh, I want to know when your next book is coming <laughs> oh yes Kathy doesn't just endorse anyone either like unlike some authors Kathy is like pretty careful about who she endorses so, you know if Kathy gives an endorsement you need to pick it up oh yes and Ka- yep. I know Kathy is careful but we're gonna do a video <laughs> endorsement for that women's book so she can oh yeah <laughs> uh speaking of Kathy you are doing something pretty cool on your Instagram which you did this last year right 
I did. So last year I did just books by Asian American authors. So this year in honor of um, my month, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, that's super long. Um, I'm going a little broader with uh, featuring creatives, Asian American creatives. So if you want to find me on Instagram at Ms. Ms. Kathy Kong, you can follow along. Matt, what's the latest Narnia article you've got up? Uh, I just have one that just went up this week uh, that's all about the Voyage of the Dawn Treader when Eustace gets turned into a dragon and the uh, kind of what, how did C.S. Lewis describe the spiritual journey uh, and what is the role of God in the personal transformation of a human being? So it's basically just the Roman ro- the Roman's road? <laughs> you got to read it to find out. I don't okay, want to spoil okay, anything. Okay. <laughs> that's at Tor.com. Uh think Christian did a watch party of Into the Spider-Verse a few weeks ago, and we recorded the after, we had about a 30-minute long discussion afterwards um, that we recorded and put up in the Think Christian podcast feed, and then I heard a rumor that they're also going to release our in-movie commentary as a commentary track that you can download and play and listen to as we're as the film is going. So, uh, those are all at the Think Christian website as well. So, uh, all right. This has been episode 262, believe it or not. Uh, and uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our guest, uh, Minister Only Love, for joining us. Make sure you connect with her, follow her online, pick up her book. It's terrific. Uh, we will be back next week with another great episode. Until then, stay safe, stay at home, quit touching your face, and be well. <laughs>